What is prayer? Stale tradition? Ritual? A good luck charm? Part of some religious checklist? Done to appease a higher being so we can get what we want? Or at least avoid the lightning bolt? Prayer has been redefined and twisted and confused. But at its essence, prayer is simply talking to God. The God who spoke the universe into creation, who gives us life and breath, who holds all things together. This God wants us to talk to him. In the vastness of all that exists, he actually cares about us personally, individually. How can we not pray to such a loving God? Wherever we are, how can we not thank him for what he's done or cry out when we need help, when we need forgiveness, when we're afraid, when we give thanks for our blessing or question where our next meal will come from? Why would we live a life apart from him? It's not about formula. How could any posture or well-chosen word impress the author of time and space? It's simple obedience. God has made himself available to us. He wants to hear from us. He wants us to trust in him, to acknowledge our dependence on him, to draw near to the one who loved us first. Approaching with confidence, because Christ has torn away the veil. He's washed away the sin that kept us from his presence. And we live in relationship with our Lord. And so we ask that his kingdom come, his will be done on earth and in our lives as it is in heaven. That is prayer. Well, if you haven't figured it out by now, we're going to be talking about prayer today. Um, as been mentioned, we uh, celebrated uh, Ash Wednesday uh, this past week. Uh, I know that that's part of some of your traditions more than other people's traditions, but it's a time for us to remember and enter into uh, 40 days of remembering and joining with Jesus as he walks to the cross. And then as we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday, his uh, life uh, risen from the dead that brings us life. And so during these, um, these days of Lent, we um, are going to be following Jesus's, portions of Jesus' life through the Gospel of Matthew. And today what I want us to look at is uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 15, or excuse me, verses 5 through 15. You know, one of the great privileges we have as the body of Christ is prayer. The fact that the creator of the universe, the almighty God, the sovereign of eternity, the, the uh, giver of every good and perfect gift, the one who has uh, been our salvation, as the psalmist says, um, that God invites you and invites me into his very presence to uh, speak with him, 
As we sang today, they will join the ten thousands of angels singing hallelujah around the throne. Can you just imagine in your, in your mind's eye what that will be like someday? when we'll have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of the heavenly host joined with all those who have loved Jesus and followed God throughout the ages, gathered around the throne of Jesus singing hallelujah. That will fill our hearts, that will fill our eyes, that will fill our minds with the wonder of who Jesus is. What a great and glorious day, the Bible calls it that day, but that day which will last forever on to, into eternity, that we will be physically in the presence of God. We shall see him as he is. We will join with the heavenly chorus in giving praise and honor to God. And we may look forward to that as we get closer to God, even as we get closer to maybe even the end of our lives here on earth or closer to Christ's return to gather up his church. We look forward to joining God in heaven and to praising him, but we don't have to wait till then. There is something that God gives us right now that we could enter into his presence and that gift to us is prayer. But if we're honest, like uh, Paul was honest when he came and prayed today, um, sometimes we don't know what to pray for. Sometimes we are lost. Sometimes we feel weak. Sometimes you may come to that time in your life when you feel in the time of your day that you feel that it's time for prayer, talking to God, and you um, get in that position that's most comfortable for you, whether it's sitting in a chair, sitting at a table, on your knees, laying on your bed, whatever works for you, and you seek to enter into God's presence, and there's nothing but emptiness. Have you ever been there? I've been there too many times to mention. The times that I would enter into God's presence, doing everything I can to align myself with his purpose, to see him, to treat it as holy. And yet I come before God and I feel empty. I have no words to say. I have lots of things to pray for, lots of people to pray for. My list is very long, but I just feel empty. I feel like I can't get started. Now, let me share one thing right off the top, that if you find yourself in that place, that is okay. It is better to be in the presence of God, seeking his face in silence than it is for you not to be there. Even if you can think of nothing to say, to just be quiet before God, resting in his presence. I know I've shared this before. I think I've shared it with... with um, you hear, but there are times in um, my marriage uh, with Linda, to Linda, that um, we have just sat in quietness next to each other. And as the, as the guy, 
I want to, um, you know, I want to make sure we are communicating, that we are talking, that we are doing something. It's kind of a, it's kind of a scary place to be sitting next to your wife and she's not saying anything. Because in my mind, I have to think, have I done something wrong? Am I to figure this out on my own and then confess my sin? When my wife will say to me, I just want to be next to you. We don't have to talk. I just want to be next to you. And that is the same place that God would say to you, I just want to be next to you. We don't have to talk. I just want us to be together. And yet, if you look through the history of God's people, they have been a people of prayer. They have sought God. Their whole relationship with God throughout the ages has been to seek God, to speak with God, to enter into relationship with God, to offer sacrifices and songs and prayer. In fact, the greatest prayer book ever compiled we have in our Old Testament, 150 prayers Some of them of praise, some of them of crying out from the miry deeps. Some of them spoken in great love, and some of them spoken out of great anger. The Psalms have been the prayer book of God's people. So we are part of a great tradition of prayer. We have the prayer book in front of us. And yet... Like the disciples who follow Jesus, sometimes we just don't get it. The corollary passage to the Matthew passage today is uh, found in Luke 11. And a little different thing that it has in Luke 11 is that the disciples come to Jesus and they say to Jesus, teach us to pray. Now, these are guys that were raised in Jewish homes. These are guys that have experienced and spoken prayers in their homes and in their synagogues. They have experienced prayer. They may have even prayed themselves, and they have followed Jesus for a good period of time here, and they finally look at Jesus and realize there's something different in his relationship with God than in their relationship with God, and they mark it up to prayer, and then they say to Jesus, teach us, teach us, teach us how to pray, and Jesus does. So we were looking at the Matthew passage that talks about this very familiar prayer for most of us. In fact, in In my Bible here, it gives this subheading that says the Lord's Prayer. Now realize that that's not in Scripture. 
That's just an editor's idea that he wants to warn us of what's coming next. And Jesus says to those around him, he's in the midst of the, what we would call the Sermon on the Mount, this great teaching about what it is to be part of the kingdom of God. And he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. They are praying not so much in their relationship with God as in their relationship to the people around us. They use all sorts of words and actions and places of authority so that they can be seen, Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door. And pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. As a pastor and as a Christian for lots of years, who've been in lots of prayer meetings with lots of people, I have developed throughout my history some what I would call pet peeves of prayer. And one of them Jesus alludes to here is the one who uses lots of words in order to think that there are lots of words will get God's attention. I've seen that misused so many times. Maybe you have heard that prayer, that the person uses uh, the word Lord or Father or Jesus as a breath or a comma. Father, we approach you today, Father, because, Father, we want to just seek yourself, Father. We want to come before you, Father, And ask of you those things that will give you glory, Father. Have you ever met that person? And I don't mean to um, dig a little bit. Maybe you are that person. This is what Jesus alludes to. He says, we don't turn our brains on when we pray. There have been times that I've wanted to stand up in prayer meetings uh, because of bad theology in prayer. When I've heard the person say, Father, we want to thank you for dying on the cross for us. That's bad theology. The Father did not die on the cross for us. The Son died on the cross for us. In fact, when we read the scriptures, Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? Speaking to his Father. In some way, the Father has turned his Self away from Jesus at that point. And that's the theme for a whole nother sermon and a whole nother time. But we need to turn our brains on when we pray. We need to make sure that we have right theology when we pray. We need to make sure that we're just not saying words to saying 
words. Sometimes it's better for us to go, as Jesus says, into our secret place, our room. And the, and the, the uh, idea here is not so much closet. Some of your versions say go into your closet. Uh, from what I know of uh, Hebrew history and, uh, and the buildings that they built, there were no closets in the homes of that day. But they did have inner rooms away from a little bit of the pressure of the crowd, and they would go there and pray, Jesus says. Don't pray to be seen by others, but pray to be seen by God and heard by God. And then Jesus leads them to this uh, prayer that we have called the Lord's Prayer, but in most regards, it should be called the Disciples' Prayer. This isn't necessarily the prayer that Jesus prayed. This is the model prayer. This is a guideline for prayer. And there's lots of other examples of prayer, like I alluded to in Psalms, and Paul deals with in his letters. There are all types of prayer. This is not the, um, the most important prayer. The disciples were just saying, Jesus, we want to pray well. What should be the thing that makes up our prayer? What should it sound like? What should it include? I don't think Jesus ever meant for this prayer to be prayed word for word in and out every day. When I was a little kid, from the time that I can remember, my mom would uh, come and pray with me before I went to sleep at night. I'm glad she did that. And I remember as part of that evening uh, activity, we would pray the Lord's Prayer, as we called it. Every night, every day. But I can admit to you, at those early days of my uh, upbringing, I really didn't have the foggiest idea what this meant but I had it memorized. And I went to a church growing up that every Sunday we prayed the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to just step out on a limb here and say that probably most of the people in that church that were praying this were really not thinking about it too much. It's just something we do. We take the offering, we sing the doxology, we pray the Lord's Prayer. It's what we do. And there's nothing wrong with praying this prayer. Jesus does give it to us as an example. But I think he also wants us to go beyond this. This is the themes of our prayer. Jesus says, so this is how you can pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into testing, 
but deliver us from evil. And some of your Bibles will have um, something like, um, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That doxology at the end of the prayer is included in some of our texts today, and some of your Bibles do not have it, some do. And the reason is that some of the manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts we have of the New Testament of the Gospels have it, and some do not. And so the editors of our Bibles today have either chosen based upon the evidence of manuscripts to include it or not include it. So we can pray that at the end, even if the ESV version doesn't have it. There's certainly nothing wrong with it. But again, I come back to the fact that let's not pray it, just letting the words roll off of our tongue and not giving thought to what we are saying. Let me just point out a few things about this prayer that Jesus offers to us as an example. He starts off in realizing that this prayer is prayed within community. The plural that is used throughout. Our Father, not just my Father, but our Father. He's the Father of all of us. He is the Father of all creation. Our Father. And notice that we can enter into a personal relationship. It's our Father. It's not some God who is far away, out of relationship with us, and whom we are just on our knees begging before. We have a relationship with us. He he calls us into that father-child relationship. And then we were reminded where the Father is. He is in heaven. Lots of discussion today about what heaven is or where heaven is. Of course, all of us know that it's in those big, puffy, billowy clouds that heaven is, which causes me worry on a clear day. Where'd heaven go? We're not quite sure where heaven is, but it's different than earth. It's different from the realm in which we are given to live today. So Jesus wants to us to understand that, yes, God is with us. He is near to us, but this is not uh, his primary location. He is in heaven. He is in a, another realm apart from us. He is different than us. Jesus goes on to say, holy is your name, hallowed be your name. God's name is, is above every other name. We read in Revelation that it is at the name of uh, Jesus that every knee will bow. His name is holy. It's not like anything else. 
He is in heaven and he is holy. He is not like you. He is not like your friends. And sometimes we speak in what I would call holy language when we address God. And I think rightfully so. God is not like your friend that you have at school. He is not like your coworker. He is not like your family member. He is wholly different. And I think, therefore, should be addressed differently. I always use the example of if you were invited to see the president of the United States, you received a call or a special invite that you alone had opportunity to be invited to the Oval Office. And I don't care what side of the aisle you fall on. I love this church because we don't have an aisle in the middle so we can sit all over the place. It doesn't matter whether you think this is a good president or a bad president, one you voted for or one you didn't vote for. If I was invited into the Oval Office, I would um, not be wearing my overalls. I'd probably be dressed up as I could. I know I wouldn't walk up to Mr. President and slug him in the shoulder and say, bud, how's it going? No, I would follow protocol. Of course, if you slug the president in the shoulder, there'd probably be four or five secret service guys on top of you faster than you could breathe. But you give respect and you deal with the president or those in authority differently than you do your buddy. And I think if it's true with my relationship to those in authority over me, how much more true must it be for my relationship with the sovereign, eternal God? We need to remember who we are addressing. He is holy. He is in heaven. And yet he is our father. Jesus goes on to say, we are to pray that your kingdom, God, will come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to pray for God's kingdom rule, his sovereignty to be as impactful here as it is before his very throne. When God speaks from his throne, the angels don't turn to each other. The seraphim don't turn to each other and go, what do you think? Should we do that? That happened once in history. And those angels have been expelled from the very presence of God. But when God speaks in heaven, the heavenly hosts do what he calls them to do. They don't discuss it. They don't think about it. They don't plan about it. They don't write out a paper about it. They just do what God calls them to do. And when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for the same thing. 
God, we want your kingdom rule now. But how often do we pray that phrase? Does it roll off our lips and yet it, in our very lives, the kingdom is not given much thought? Or God may give us direction in his word and we go and talk about it. Should we really do what God calls us to do? Let's have a debate. Let's have a church meeting. Let's open all our books of theology and see what we can find out rather than just obeying God like when Jesus says, love your neighbor. We talk about what that means rather than just going and loving our neighbor. So we're praying for God's kingdom to be fully established here. We want his will to be done. So he gives us three, these three beginning statements that God's name would be hallowed. We are called into his presence, first of all, in our Father in heaven. We pray for his name to be hallowed. We pray for his kingdom to come. And after we have focused our intent on God and his glory, Jesus says, then we turn our prayers to our specific needs, our needs for sustenance, our needs for forgiveness, our need for leading, guiding. Give us this day our daily bread. I'm sure you would read that in front of some gathered Hebrews and they would immediately think of the wandering in the wilderness that every day God gave the Jews their daily bread. Interesting, if we remember the uh, account in the Exodus, that bread was only given for that day. They were told not to take any bread for tomorrow. God said, essentially, trust me. I gave you bread today. Trust me for bread tomorrow. And maybe I'll even throw some quail in with it. Give us today our daily bread, what we need for today. And of course, that bread can be defined as a physical food. It be spiritual food. It is what we need to live for today. Give us today our daily bread. And then he says that we pray about our sins. We ask God to forgive us our debts. And and we use different words. Sometimes we use sin. Sometimes we use trespasses. And in Matthew's account, the word that used is used is debts. It's, It's forgive us our debts, that which we owe you but have no capability of paying off. We can't do it. In Luke's gospel, uh, when we come to this prayer, he uses the word harmatia, which means sin, which is against God, missing God's mark that he has set for us. We have disobeyed his law. But here Jesus says, forgive us our debts, that which we owe but can't afford to pay. And in the same way that we are forgiven, we are to forgive one another, those who 
in some sense, owe us, but don't have the ability to pay. Now, that may mean money. It may mean a material object. It may be honor due. But the goal here is that we are forgivers, not hoarders. And then he says, lead us not into, some of your Bibles will say temptation. The better definition of that word throughout the New Testament is not temptation, but testing. Lead us not into testing, that place that will put us in a, in a, in a situation that we have a chance to fail at. We don't want, God, the scripture tells us that God um, is not tempted and tempts no one. God does not put a possibility of sin in front of you and say, here you go. Just try a little bit. It won't kill you. Seems to me that that's Satan's ploy in the garden. Here you go. Just a bite. It won't kill you. Satan used that ploy when Jesus was finishing up his 40 days in the wilderness. Take a look at this, Jesus. Just do this little thing. It won't kill you. But see, God is not in that business. But he does allow testing to come before us. And what we are praying for is that when we do face testing, and we all will face testing, that we choose God's way. We choose holy. Don't lead us into testing, but God, deliver us from all sense of evil. And some of your verses will say, from the evil one. And both of those are allowable. God, keep us safe. Hold us in the hollow of your hand. Deliver us from all sense of evil. Those requests that we make in 11 and 12 and 13 are based upon the praises and the, the acknowledgments we give in verses 9 and 10. It starts with God. Let me um, wrap it up with verses 14 and 15. This is a sermon within itself, and it takes a long time to unpack the stuff here. But many people read this and get really confused, and, and sometimes I get really confused when I read this because I want to do right. So Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I'm not going to go into great detail. Let me just... Suffice it to say this, um, if we take this verse, these verses by themselves and extract them out of scripture, we have a big problem. 
But I think what is being said here is in the context of Scripture with the whole of Scripture and to believe and to say, and I'm not going to get myself in trouble here because someone's already going to stand up and throw something at me. But if we say our salvation is dependent upon our forgiving another person, that's contrary to what the Scripture tells us about salvation. We believe as evangelical Christians that God's word gives to us over and over and over again that our salvation is in God's, comes from God's grace based upon the expression of our faith. We don't work ourselves into God's favor and forgiveness. God doesn't say to us, do this little thing here, pray this way, give this amount, work in this program, and then you shall be saved. Jesus says, whoever calls on his name shall be saved. The Apostle Paul tells us, reminds us, it is by grace that we have been saved. It's by Christ's work on the finished work on the cross that we have been saved, not based upon our activities, as holy as they may seem. So what is Jesus getting at here? Be honest with you, I don't understand everything that Jesus is getting at here. But one thing I've learned by experience and through the experience of others and through God's word that forgiven people forgive. And if you really want to know God's forgiveness, want to experience it, then forgive others. Somebody has hurt you, forgive them. If somebody has taken something of yours, forgive them. And please note that forgiveness is not an agreement with sin. Somebody takes something from you, it's wrong. Somebody hurts you, it's wrong. But we can still forgive. The scripture tells us in other places that we are forgiven, forgive as we have been forgiven. So if you want to experience the forgiveness of God, I mean, to really experience it, one of the best ways you can do that is by forgiving others. And to the measure we forgive, we experience forgiveness. Your salvation is not dependent upon it, but this is a result of your salvation. And the question can be asked, if that person is not forgiving, if you are not forgiving, we have to say, is your salvation at work in us? 
Are we becoming and like Jesus? Is that what we're supposed to do? That's what the Holy Spirit has been given us. Are we grieving the Holy Spirit here? Are we standing at odds with God? It doesn't have to do with your salvation at this point. It has to do with your experience of God's forgiveness. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy.org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.